Hi, welcome back everyone. This is Didact and this is the Christmas podcast. Very warm welcome as always to all of my longtime listeners over at uh, Podbean. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers over at the site. If you have not subscribed on either platform, please make sure you do so. Make sure you like, comment, share and subscribe. This is Didactic Mind, episode 90, The Priceless Gift. Uh, first and foremost, brothers, my, may the peace and blessings of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you this day. Uh, merry, very, very merry, happy Christmas to everyone listening in. Uh, this, is, this is an indescribably special day, and I am privileged and honored to be sharing this with you. I'm really very appreciative of the fact that you've taken the time to listen, and I hope that you get a lot out of it because there is a lot to discuss and there is a lot to go over and uh, talk about and experience within the podcast itself and within the wider world. Um, The fact is, brothers, this has been an astonishingly difficult year and 2020 was bad and in some ways 2021 was worse. But we're almost through it. It's almost over. And it's important to take stock and realize what it is we've gained and what we've lost as we go into the coming year. This has been one of the toughest, well, probably the second toughest year in living memory for me. And I've been around a little longer than most. Um, Believe me, I feel it, uh, especially these days with my achy knees and rickety back and, and so on. But It has been difficult for a large number of reasons for everyone. I did not have the the hardest year possible. I mean, there are people who read my site who have been through much, much worse, who have lost jobs, lost loved ones, lost homes, families, uh, savings, businesses. They've lost basically everything. And yet they still keep going. They still keep fighting. they keep pushing forward. Somehow they find the courage to keep going because that's what you have to do in these situations. You can't just sit back and take it. You have to find some way to move on. And that's what these men have done. So I really salute you, those of you who are listening, for having the courage and the strength to push forward in times like these where things are crazy and insane and ridiculous and yet you show up for the fight every day you keep doing what you have to do you keep pushing forward you have my utmost respect and I am very grateful to you for making the site what it is I am very grateful to you for listening into this podcast and for contributing as you do to my life and to the lives of others around us Uh, Through your comments, your thoughts, your ideas, everything that you contribute to my site and elsewhere. What I wanted to address today really concerns um, the nature of the gift we have been given. Uh, In some ways, I like Christmas Eve more than I like Christmas itself. Uh, I remember our beloved dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort, the most malevolent and terrible talking about this some years ago, and uh, he did it in one of his dark streams back when his dark streams were still online and available for free through YouTube and BitChute and so on. 
And um, what he said was effectively that, uh, you know, it's the peace and the quiet of Christmas Eve that is really special. Um, there's a certain stillness about Christmas Eve that's really quite wonderful. Once all the hubbub dies down and people have gone where they need to go, um, you, you get this kind of breathing room, this space, this silence that is really beautiful. And it is in that silence, especially if you have just attended a midnight mass and come out of it, that you can form your deepest thoughts and reflect upon what it is we've been through since last Christmas. Now, last Christmas, things looked very, very bleak, and uh, much of the Western world was in lockdown. Uh, I was shortly to be on my way to a country that had just implemented a nationwide lockdown, and that lockdown would continue for another four months before people finally uh, started lifting restrictions. Now they're looking to lock down again, potentially over something that's really no worse than a bad cold. Maybe it's just a mild cold. It's genuinely stupid. And I think that's been the hardest thing to take out of everything we've seen so far uh, in terms of just the sheer stupidity that we have experienced over the past year. 2020 was the year of testing of our patience and of our institutions. And unfortunately, most of our institutions failed those tests. We trusted our institutions to keep us safe and to stop us from suffering unnecessarily. And of course, that is exactly the opposite of what they did. They ended up imposing such ridiculous lockdowns and such awful policies that we actually suffered more because of them. It's worth remembering that this whole pandemic and everything we've been through for the last two years, this scamdemic, as I have called it many times, is nothing more than a giant IQ test and a compliance test. And most of us have failed that test. Most of us have uh, given up our essential freedoms in exchange for supposed security hasn't worked out well for us. And here we are two years down the line from a very fake, very foolish scamdemic, desperately trying to claw them back. We should never have given them up in the first place, but here we are, and this is what we've done. And when you look back at the meaning of Christmas itself, you begin to understand through this lens of the time we're living in just what it meant to have something like this day happen. This is the reason why we were given this day, to free us from a world gone plainly mad. Now, things have changed somewhat since that day 2,000 years ago, as you might expect. Back then, the institutions that existed were designed to protect people they were designed to promote stability and order. If you look in the Bible, who is it that, or which group of people is it that has that is treated with great respect and reverence? It is, in fact, the centurions. Wherever you go in the New Testament, what you'll find, as Pastor John MacArthur points out, 
is that centurions are treated with great respect. Oddly enough, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the faith of the centurion is a clear indicator of both Christ's kingship and his ability to work miracles as the Son of God, and the respect due to a centurion. Now, think about that for a moment. A centurion, what, what is a centurion? A centurion, or what was a centurion, was the most potent and visible symbol of the might and the authority of the Roman Empire. A centurion in a largely illiterate society had to be able to read and write in Latin, which any student of language, never mind classical languages, but languages in general, will tell you is a beast of a language. It is incredibly hard to understand. Four cases, multiple genders, I think two genders, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and a, a bewildering array of grammatical rules. Anyone who has ever studied Russian has some idea what to expect with Latin. It's that bad. And uh, very, very uh, deep and rich vocabulary. It's a dead language today, but back then, to to communicate in Latin in the Vulgate and in other languages to the lay people was a great skill. Remember, largely illiterate society, uh, largely peopled by peasants and by laborers, but a centurion had a special status. He had to be able to give every order and drill in every formation that the Roman army understood. And he had to be able to teach those maneuvers and teach those skills to his fellow soldiers, also from rough backgrounds who didn't have much schooling or education. So these men were enforcers of Roman law, Roman rule of the Pax Romana. That was no small thing. These were the men who occupied Israel and maintained that occupation on behalf of Augustus Caesar and of all the Caesars who followed. It is these men who are given great respect in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Paul is helped up by a centurion after a crowd of Jews tries to stone him to death. The centurions are treated respectfully, reverently, by Paul, by the other apostles, by Jesus himself. I mean, not reverently in the case of Jesus, but um, with respect, certainly. Look at our institutions today, and what you see is not the strength and discipline and decency, fundamental decency of the Roman centurion. What you see instead is venality, crassness, stupidity, incompetence, uh, villainy, nepotism, sloth, and utter, total, callous disregard for human life. You do not see institutions designed to promote and protect. You see, instead, institutions designed to corrupt and destroy. And this is true at every level of society. It is not true merely in the medical profession or in the educational profession or in the legal profession or in the, within the police, within law enforcement, within the military. 
it is true even in churches themselves, not in the body of the church, for the body of the church is simply and profoundly those who believe, those who are redeemed through faith, sola fide, sola gratia, through grace and through faith. Uh, though the, the body of the church remains as it was, but the churches themselves are corrupt beyond description. If you look at the Southern Baptist Convention, or you look at the Catholic Church, or you look even at the Orthodox Church, for which I have considerable respect, you look at their doctrines, you look at what they've adopted, you look at how they are comporting themselves, you cannot help but be disgusted by how corrupt and backward-looking and uh, conformist with the world they have become. These are not good places to be, these are not good places to worship in general. Uh, and I say this, you know, without rancor towards Catholics. I mean, I honestly, I like and respect most Catholics, uh, Pope Francis being a conspicuous exception. But let's face facts, the Catholic doctrines don't make a whole lot of sense. There are a lot of problems with them. And there are lots of things about the Catholic approach to things that I do not agree with, and which the Bible doesn't agree with. Um, I was in a Catholic midnight mass yesterday. Why? Because honestly, if I have to go to the church nearest me, I, I mean, first I don't even know if they're open because their their uh, their bulletin board is is hardly ever updated, and secondly. I don't much care for that particular church's doctrine at all. I mean, if there's any group that I think is even more doctrinally unsound than the Catholics, it's these guys. Uh, you could argue that the Unitarians are worse, but then Unitarians aren't Christian, so you know, what are you going to do? But the Midnight Mass for me was extremely moving, it was extremely emotional. Um, but in the midst of the service, the, the, the homilies that were preached were all about, uh, you know, climate change this and politics that and the holy apostolic Catholic Church the other and Pope Francis the next. And I was sitting there going, yeah, you gotta be kidding me. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put up with that stuff. That's just nonsense. Um, but the core message of the gospel remained. The core message of Christmas remained. It remained about hope. It remained about the priceless gift that we have been given, this astonishing gift of immeasurable value that we have been given. In the midst of all of this persecution, all of this madness, this stupidity, this corruption, here was born an infant, helpless and in not very good conditions, in the middle of a manger, born to redeem the world. You can't get a greater gift than that. Everything that we have tried to do for ourselves, to save ourselves, it hadn't worked by that point. It, it didn't work at, uh, up until then. And it's still not working today. I mean, we try to pull ourselves up through man-made means. It's not effective. It's not useful. It doesn't help us. It doesn't save us in any way. The only thing that can save us are was what happened 2020 odd years ago. I've seen um, some arguments that uh, Christ was actually born in 4 BC. Maybe he was. Um, it doesn't really affect my understanding of, of 
anything if it was 4 BC or uh, 1 AD. We don't really have a concept of zero, unfortunately. So we don't have the zeroth century and we don't have the year zero. But uh, whatever year he was born in, that year was a momentous one because it gave us hope for the first time of a promise fulfilled. That promise remains today the same as it ever was. The promise is simple. If you have faith in God and Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that faith will fundamentally change you as a person. You won't look any different on the outside, but the way you behave will change. The way you see the world especially will change. You look at the world with very different eyes. And you'll begin to understand that every other way of looking at humanity is fundamentally flawed. See, here's the reality uh, of other faiths versus Christianity. And this is what makes this promise of peace and reconciliation with God so important. Every other faith teaches that you can be made whole or you can be changed or you can become better through works. Every single other faith is a faith of works. You do things, you get things. If you look at Hinduism, it's completely a works-based religion. You perform these specific rituals in this specific order. You worship that particular God. You think of God as being an aspect of the oneness of the universe. Or you can refuse to believe in anything, and you can still call yourself a Hindu. I mean, there are Hindu atheists out there. You are born into Hinduism. You can never convert out. You can convert in, but you can't convert out. Um, and you are caught up in this endless cycle of death, rebirth, reincarnation, and uh, everything that you do in this life determines how you will end up in the next. Well, that is a profoundly depressing message, actually, if you think about it. Yes, if you do good works in this life, you will end up in a better station in the next one. But if you end up in a bad station in the next one, uh, or if you're in a bad station in this life, it's because you did something bad in the previous life, right? So it is your fate to suffer. It is your fate to be crapped upon, to do all the menial work, to be shunned, to be ostracized, and to be treated like human dirt, which is exactly what a very large number of Indians are treated like. Uh, that's what the, the whole Dalit class, the untouchables, uh, that is where that class comes from. These are the people who are viewed through the lens of the Hindu religion as being untouchable because they have committed such terrible things in the previous life that they deserve to be treated like crap in this one. They are quite literally the, uh, how you would say, the, the blackwater uh, sweepers, the, the, the dirt shovelers, the, 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 the toilet cleaners, really. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. They, they shovel the shit off the streets. That's their job, or at least it used to be. Um, Fortunately, by rejecting that very foolish view of the world, you get rid of a lot of this nonsense. But to do so, you either have to go secular or towards Christianity. You have to go either towards one extreme or the other. You, you can't stay in a Hindu paradigm and have a faith-based view, view of redemption. Islam is completely works-based. Islamic practice and tradition teaches you that uh, 
what you do in your life gains you barakah, uh, goodwill from Allah. And that if you gain enough barakah, you can ex- access uh, Jannah, their, their uh, idea of paradise, which is a very sensual, sensuous, um, strange paradise. It's the more, the more good works you do on earth, the, the more likely you are to get good things in heaven. But even as you cross over the bridge between this world and the next, uh, Allah reserves the right to cast you off that bridge and down into the fiery pit below where you will be consumed by fire for all time. It doesn't matter how well you behaved. Allah can still throw you into that pit if he wants to. And you have no choice but to take it. It doesn't matter what you do. You are in the hands of a capricious and faithless God who is completely remote from his creation, has no intention of entering his creation, and has no interest in being part of his creation at all. He's completely remote from it, completely absent from it, and plays no part in it. He just dictates how it works. Uh, This is a rules-based idea. It's a completely rules-based framework. If you look at every other faith anywhere, it always comes down to rules and works. But if you look at Christianity, it comes down to a promise kept by a God who loves us so much that he would enter this world and die for us in order to redeem us. Think about that for a minute. The truth about your condition, no matter how much good, how many good things you've done in your life, no matter how much of a good person you are, how many wonderful things you do for other people, you are sinful and you are inherently uh, wicked in the eyes of God because you cannot possibly match up to his perfection. The reality is that no matter what your station in life, no matter who you are, you are a wicked, impure creature that deserves to die and be crushed by the weight of your sins in the eyes of God. Not of man, but in the eyes of God. That's what he thinks except for the fact that he loves you so much that he's willing to offer you a second chance. He's willing to give you the a, a way out. He's willing to offer you a chance to redeem yourself. And you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to sacrifice for it. You just have to believe. Now that belief system is terrifying quite frankly. It is, it is a genuine, it's a terrifying system. It's, take it from me, you know, someone who has struggled with the, that last step for years. It is genuinely scary to, to take that final plunge into the abyss and say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and you know, ascended into heaven. Uh, was not corrupted, was sinless, was pure. I mean, that shouldn't happen. It, it shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be something within the realm of imagination, and yet it is. It's something that we can do. It's something that we can believe in. It's something that actually happened. And that is astonishing. And it is the core of our belief. Today is the day we celebrate the core of that belief. It is the day 
in which we understand and appreciate what it is that we were given, that gift. This is the, re this is the true meaning of Christmas. It is not just about um, spending time with family and friends. And that's wonderful, don't get me wrong, I love that. It's my favorite thing about Christmas, is being able to spend it with loved ones. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do that this year. I'm lucky enough to be able to spend time with people that I love and that I'm happy to be around and that I care about very deeply. You know, it's, it's, it's great that I'm able to do that and to, to be around those people. And, you know, for those who, uh, are unable to do that, you know, I'm genuinely, I am, I am truly sorry. And I hope that wherever you are, um, you are at least comforted by people like me who, who pray for you and uh, hope for you and will um, will just wish you the best, really. Um, and if you are alone today, then understand that you're not really alone, that there is someone and something out there, a, a, a God who loves you, who wants you to be whole and to be reconciled with him that gave you a gift today. And that is the nature of this day. This tradition of exchanging presents on Christmas Day is a wonderful one. It's a really a very special one. But it doesn't come or it, it's not accidental that it's about exchanging gifts. The fact that so many of us grew up with Christmas as a gift-giving holiday is not accidental, it's not surprising. The very nature of Christmas comes from multiple traditions which accumulated over time, but it comes from one fundamental tradition, which it's not even a tradition actually, I'm not speaking correctly. It comes from one fundamental fact that you can't avoid, which is that this day is about the gift we were given. This day, therefore, is about proclaiming the good news to all men across all nations of life everlasting, of uh, a, a world free of pain and misery and failure and sin and corruption, a world in which we have hope. That is the gift of this day. That is the fundamental reason why we give gifts to each other on this day. That is the reason why we sit, you know, put gifts underneath the tree for our children and for our friends and our loved ones, and we offer them these things because we ourselves were given a gift. That's the truth. I mean, you know, I understood the concept of gift giving within Christmas years ago, and it was very sweet, it was very nice, and it really made me feel good, but there was no religious significance to it. This, as I've grown and, and developed into the current understanding that I have, this makes much more sense. That the reason we have this gift is, or the reason we are given gifts is because, and the reason we give gifts to each other is because of the gift we were given 2,000 odd years ago on this day. It's a very special day for that exact reason, and there's a lot to celebrate because of this. It's, it's a very, very special day for precisely that reason. 
What then are we to do with this gift? Well, honestly, that's up to you. You have to figure out how to use it and how to reconcile yourself with it. Because just because the gift of salvation is offered freely, just because the Prince of Peace arrived for you, that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to take it. And the reality is most people aren't going to take it. The reality is most people won't be convinced. No matter how many miracles they hear about, no matter how much they see, that no matter the transformative effects that they see in others, they will never be convinced. And that's just the reality. Um, Jesus himself had a lot of very hard work to do, and it didn't, it didn't really pay off for him. There was a lot that didn't go well for him in, in his ministry. You know, he was persecuted, he was attacked, he was, uh, he was reviled, he was set upon, he was tested repeatedly. And yet he endured all of that with dignity and composure. He certainly wasn't afraid to stand up for himself. I mean, anyone who reads the seven woes uh, to the Pharisees cannot fail but be taken aback by how uh, venomous his attacks are against the Pharisees, against this legalistic dead tradition that tried to lawyer its way around the word, around the law, uh, given to them so clearly by Moses through the Lord. You know, well, by the Lord through Moses, I should say. Um, the Pharisees themselves were uh, tellingly of a very different type of Judaism than what Christ himself believed in. The thing to understand about Judaism is that the Judaism we know of today is not the Judaism of the time of Moses. The Judaism of the time of Moses before the Babylonian exile was rooted in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, in the Mosaic law. But after the Babylonian exile, it began to change. The traditions of Moses became less important than the ideas and the uh, writings and the kind of accumulated wisdom of the rabbis and of the scribes and of the elders. Uh, was this a good thing? No, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't. Um, much of the, the core message of the Torah, especially in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, was lost. There's a reason why it's called the book of Deuteronomy. God said very clearly early on, you aren't going to be capable of living up to my standards. He knew it. I mean, he said so. He's blatant about it. And he said, so instead of making you live up to this standard, I'm going to give you a set of rules that you need to obey in order to keep yourselves clean, in order to keep yourselves pure in my sight. And that is where the, um, the, the various mitzvot come from. Uh, now, I'm simplifying things horrendously. I'm sure that my friends from the tribe will be quite annoyed with me about how much I'm skipping over. And fair enough. I mean, the male brain, I'm sure, will listen to this and go, yeah, he has no idea what he's talking about. It, look, fair enough, right? I, I don't pretend to be an expert in this regard. Um, if I've gotten something wrong, that's my fault. I apologize. But this is my understanding of where things have gone. And as far as I know, this is what happened. Um, the Babylonian Talmud is a much younger religion than the religion of Christianity. It really is. I mean, 
what you know of as Judaism today and what Christ knew as modern Judaism in his time is very, very different from the Judaism of Moses. And that's true. Uh, today, Jews don't look to the Torah as the final arbiter of what is right and what is good. They look to the Talmud. They look to the uh, the, the, the Mishnah and the um, uh, the other one. I forget I forget what it's called. It starts with a G, I think. But this is not Judaism as it was originally intended. This is a lawyer. This is a lawyerized version of the law, and it's not a good thing. You achieve salvation through works, through obedience to a very obscure set of laws, which make you dress funny and eat funny and act funny, at least um, by modern sensibilities. That's why Orthodox Jews have such an uh, such a quote-unquote odd lifestyle. And it's uh, it, it is very challenging to be an Orthodox Jew in the modern world. Uh, if you want an idea of what that's like, go read a book called uh, The Year of Living Biblically. I'll try to link to it in the description box. And I'm, I haven't read it all the way through, but it's quite hilarious in some ways. I mean, the, the, the attempts by this one modern secular Jew to live like an Orthodox Jew, an ultra-Orthodox Jew who follows every single commandment of the Bible as literally as possible, uh, the attempts are absolutely hysterical. Um, some of them, you know, flatly fly in the face of, of modern life and modern living. And it's frankly impossible for him to keep up. That is the kind of thing that we are liberated from on this day. We don't have to worry about that anymore because the eternal covenant that God swore with us as his children was fulfilled. And think about how God got around this, this issue of sin. I mean, think about how he managed to deal with the problem. God cannot stand to be around sin and sinners. We have become so sinful, and we had become so sinful, that he could not bear to be in our presence, except through the, the, the conduit, like the temple, and through uh, human instruments like Moses, uh, whose face shone so brightly after looking uh, or communing with the Lord that the people turned away in terror, because they couldn't stand to look at his face. It was like looking at the sun. That's the kind of God we're dealing with, a, a creator who is so other than us that it's impossible for us to be like him, even though he created us in his image. And I contend, I think Dr. Michael Heiser has it right when he says that um, it's best to think of it in terms of a functional imager rather than a literal imager. We are here in this realm to act as functionaries of the Lord rather than that we were created in his physical image. Uh, I think that makes sense. And I think it, it, it accords with the, the, the deep Hebrew un Hebraic understanding of the Bible very very well. Of course, I'm no Hebraist, so I mean, what do I know about the subject? I'm just saying that based on what else is written in the book, it kind of makes sense. And therefore, given that we are fundamentally imagers uh, of 
our Lord, our Creator in this world that we live in, what then are we to do with the fact that He cannot be around us? Uh, what is He to do? Because He operates in kind of this odd realm where He cannot abide to be around His creation, which has rebelled and sinned against Him. But He loves us so much that He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to save us, He wants to destroy evil that He Himself permits to exist to achieve a greater end. But to destroy evil would mean to destroy man's free will, to create mindless, obedient slaves. And if there is one thing that comes out of the creation account with absolute clarity, it is that God does not want mindless, unthinking slaves. He wants creatures that worship Him of our own free will, our own desire to do so. He wants to be glorified through His creation, but He wants it to be done because that creation wants to do it. This is a nearly intractable set of problems. It is impossible for God to enter this world in His own form, uh, because of our sinful nature. He cannot stand to be around sin. It, he needs to enter this world because we can't save ourselves. That much is very clear. So how does he do it? He conceives or he creates a son in a virgin who takes on human form. It is part of the triune Godhead. It is part of God himself. And that son goes forth into the world and redeems mankind through one sacrifice for all time. That is the gift we were given on this day. That is the priceless gift. And that is what we ourselves are meant to perpetuate through the generations to our children and to their children and to their children after that. We are meant to give them the gifts in a kind of a, a type and shadow of what we were given. Gift-giving in and of itself is great. It's nice, it's sweet, it's kind, it's wonderful. But never forget the purpose of that gift-giving. It is a type and shadow of the gift, the most priceless gift of all that we were given. A chance to redeem ourselves. That is the point of this day. Don't ever forget it, and don't ever stray away from that truth. The last thing I really want to talk about today is about how Christianity almost ended as a faith. If you read Hilaire Belloc's uh, The Great Heresies, fantastic book, highly recommended. Hilaire Belloc himself was a devout Christian, a devout Catholic, and a formidable debater, an extremely capable and talented uh, debater who took on pretty much everybody at a time when atheism was running rampant through the universities. Um, and, you know, back then, it wasn't some fashionable de rigueur movement the way it is today. Back then, atheism was kind of the upstart rebel movement um, that uh, really was challenging Christianity on every front. Because the background to Belloc's writings and Belloc's uh, arguments was that uh, the academy at the time had really created a very sustained and powerful attack on biblical truth and biblical tradition. The Germans, uh, particularly in the Tübingen school, 
Tubingen. Yeah, Tubingen's the Tubingen school had really sharpened their tools of literary criticism, redacted criticism, source criticism, textual criticism, uh, historical criticism upon the Bible itself. And this goes back to you know the mid nineteenth century, if not the early nineteenth century, where a number of inconsistencies seem to pop up in manuscript evidence and in terms of the historical record of the Bible itself. These attacks uh, really put Christians on the back foot. I mean, it just destroyed the church in Europe. And the church in Europe has never recovered since that time. Millions of people turned away from Christ and from God precisely because of these attacks, because they seemed unanswerable at the time. But the reality is that the more that they attack us, the more we discover about our own faith and the more we reaffirm the truth of that faith. And that's the remarkable thing about these attacks. The deeper that they have gone, the deeper they have dug into the past, into the Bible, into Scripture, the more we have realized that actually the Bible is true. It is a historical document. It is a living history of the human race. More than that, it is. it points every passage and every chapter and every book towards one inescapable conclusion, and that conclusion is Jesus. You can't get away from it. The entirety of the Bible is like that. Now, you can argue about this. You can say that, well, which Bible are you talking about? That's a fair argument. That is a fair argument, because the Catholics have a different version of the Bible than the Protestants do. The Protestant Bible removes uh, a number of books such as First and Second Maccabees and a couple of others. You can go look them up. Uh, there's, there are historical reasons behind this, uh, one of which, it's not the only reason, but one of those reasons is that um, Luther looked at the Masoretic texts, which were written in Hebrew, and he considered the Masoretic texts to be more accurate than the actually older Septuagint, which were the translation of the original Hebrew texts into Greek back during the days of the Greek Macedonian and then Greek occupation of um, Palestine and of uh, Egypt. So when the Ptolemaic dynasty in, in Egypt had conquered all of that territory and established it as its own, the Jews of Israel had to translate their texts into Greek, and they did, that's what we have as, as the Septuagint. The Masoretic text did not include some of the books included in the Septuagint. Luther, being who he was, said, well, I'm not, if they're not in the Masoretic text, because the Hebrew text must therefore be older, by default, I'm going to throw out the Septuagint texts, which do not conform with, uh, between the two. Now, that is, again, that is an overly simplified and not entirely accurate rendition of events. There is more to it than that. Um, the history is there for you to read if you want. But that is a very, very condensed version of the reason why, or one of the reasons why certain books are not included. The Catholic Bible includes these books, the Protestant Bibles do not. N However, the, the Catholic Bible itself has changed. Uh, this is something the Catholic Church doesn't like to admit, but it's a fact. The Catholic Bible also, that the Catholic Church has also removed books from the Bible in the past. Um, I think, I need to double check this, don't take my word for it, I think it was at the Council of Trent. Um, let me, in fact, let me check it right now. It's uh, when, uh, when the Catholic Church 
removed books from the Bible, trusty DuckDuckGo. And indeed, the Catholic Church did uh, remove 14 books from the Bible in 1684. Uh, and that's the truth. They, they did, in fact, remove those books. And those books included uh, quite some interesting bits and pieces. Uh, the Wisdom Book of Solomon and a few others. Um, so, you know, these are like apocryphal books. And these were removed uh, in uh, 1684, as, as I said. This is the, the version of the Bible that we have today in the Catholic Church is not the same as the version of the Bible that existed uh, way back when, you know, in the, in the 1000s or even the, the 400s after the original codices were, were compiled. The books that were removed, you know, first Estras, uh, Psalm 151, the book of Tobit, the book of Judith, the rest of the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesi uh, the wisdom of Sirach, and the book of Baruch. Uh, these were removed. Now, why were they removed? Well, the Catholic Church has its reasons. Um, but there were writings removed from the Bible. So when Catholics say, well, we are the true interpretation of Scripture, the natural answer to that is, no, you're not. Um, and when they complain about the way that Luther removed the books from the Bible, well, they have done the same thing. Be that as it may, and with that detour in mind, let's also keep in mind one very important fact. As I said, when if you read the great heresies, the very first of the great heresies was a heresy called Arianism. And this was a truly terrible heresy that has a lot to do with Christmas, as it happens. The Bishop Arius uh, was excommunicated from the church because he basically preached that Jesus was uh, not both man and God, that Jesus was not um, begotten. You know, he was, uh, he was lesser than the uncreated and eternal Father, that he was a lesser being, and that he was not truly God, as it were. Um, he was, he had a similar substance to God, but he was not the same substance as God. And he uh, took a lot of objection to the doctrine of the Trinity. And he believed that the doctrine of the Trinity was a little bit too philosophical. I kind of see where he's coming from. Um, but essentially, what he what he argued was a direct attack upon the divinity of Christ. And as you read in Belloc's book, his views actually became quite mainstream. His views of Christ became very mainstream among the general public. And this comes back again to the centurions that I mentioned earlier on. Um, the Roman centurions and the Roman army actually began to adopt the views of Arius. The, what, we, what you might call today Nicene or Niceno-Constantinian Christianity was actually adopted among the elites. And there was a massive schism that threatened to tear the church apart. This is why the, Nicene, the, the Council of Nicaea was convened in 325 AD by the Emperor Constantine, who had by then converted. But Constantine was not a religious scholar. He was not a theologian, which is probably a good thing, because if there's one thing I've learned about theologians in general, 
it is that theologians exist to lawyer around the meaning of the scripture and come up with an interpretation that never existed in the first place, that the plain text of the book tells you is untrue, but be that as it may, he was a politician. The Emperor Constantine was a politician, a military statesman, and a commander, and he wanted peace in his empire. He wanted an end to war. He wanted to unite the warring halves of the Roman, or the, the disagreeable halves of the Roman Empire. He wanted to administer this vast territory in a sensible way, and he wanted a religious doctrine that could be embraced by all and could be used by all to promote stability and internal rule. Christianity offered that approach. It offered a very compatible approach to everything he needed. Now, he was a true believer, yes, but he also understood pragmatically as a ruler how important it was to have a unified, united church. And in the process, he made some, a number of compromises which we continue to suffer from to this day, where we prize unity of doctrine over seeking the truth. And this is a very foolish decision to make in your life, in anybody's life, in the life of the church, uh, in, in any walk of life. Simply seeking unity over truth generally leads to very, very bad things. The Roman Catholic church system being one of them. The Orthodox church system being another. The Southern Baptist Convention system being a third. Uh, the Anglican system being a fourth. It doesn't matter where you look, there is corruption in every single institutionalized church because every single one of them has essentially adopted this, this idea that we need unity. We need absolute unity of doctrine and dogma within the body of the church rather than we need to look at what the scriptures actually say. We need to look at what Christ actually said. We need to look at the truth and we need to figure out what the truth says. The lesson from the Arian heresy comes from the way it was resolved. Arius was basically denounced as a heretic, which he was, I mean, unquestionably. Um, but his heresy had roots in things that were legitimate concerns at the time, mysteries that couldn't be sussed out. Now, the connection to Christmas comes from the fact that St. Nicholas uh, was there at the Council of Nicaea. St. Nicholas was, uh, I mean, just Nicholas, Bishop Nicholas at the time, was known for being a man of great piety and decency and kindness who would often give out gifts to children uh, as a gesture of faith and goodwill and, and uh, just human kindness. Um, but most people don't know that St. Nicholas got so pissed off at Arius listening to him preach his blasphemy in front of the Council of Nicaea, that he literally got up and punched the guy in the face. That, that's true. That's, this is, you can go look it up. It's absolutely hysterical. Um, Saint Nick, you know, the, the jolly fat guy in the red outfit with the funny hat, literally went up and full-on jap-slapped somebody in the face for preaching heresy. It's hysterical. It's awesome. It's a great story. I love it. Um, now, the funny thing is, the rest of the bishops, again, because they were obsessed with unity over truth, they grabbed hold of him and they arrested him and they threw him in jail and he sat there overnight. And they took away his uh, parchment scroll of the Bible. Now, in this day and age, when we live in 
the, the age of modern conveniences where it's very easy to pick up a copy of the Bible. All you have to do is go to your local bookstore and you can buy an NIV, an NASB, an RSV, a KJV, an NKJV, an ESV, an NET, who knows what V. It's easy to get multiple translations of the Bible very, very cheaply. You could pick up one at your local bookstore for like two pounds. You could go to your local church and get one for three dollars. No, it's that easy. It's, it's that simple. That's because we've had 500 years of the printing press. And a lot more, well, a lot of that time has been spent developing ever more advanced versions of printing technology. Back then, Bibles were really, really hard to come by. We didn't even have the full, like, completely agreed upon set of scriptures in the New Testament at that time, in 325 AD. They weren't fully canonized until quite a bit later. Each Bible had to be laboriously copied out by hand onto scrolls of parchment, animal skin. These were hugely expensive to manufacture and to preserve. So for a bishop to have his Bible taken from him was a terrible thing. I mean, it was a massive blow to his prestige and his status. And he also had his uh, first stole of his office kind of taken away from him, as I recall. And he sat in that prison cell overnight, and the guards knew perfectly well that his things had been taken away from him, his belongings had been taken somewhere else. So he didn't, you know, he didn't have the, um, the things that defined him as a man of God, as a bishop. And during the night, supposedly, this is how the story goes, he was visited by an angel, or I think by Jesus himself. And Jesus said to him, why are you here in this prison? Why do you suffer? And St. Nicholas said, because I love you, my Lord and my God. And because of this, Jesus returned to him his Bible and his stole of office. And he was sitting there quite contented in this, you know, dark, dank, cold prison cell. He seemed completely comfortable the next morning. And the guards came over and looked him over and they were like, what happened? Some sort of miracle happened. We affirmed with our own eyes that he didn't have these things the night before. What happened? He was given them back by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. That story, I think, sums up the reality of Christmas. It's a time of miracles. It's a time of wonders. It's a time of beauty. It's a time of happiness and rejoicing. But fundamentally, it's a time of truth. It's a time when you have to confront some very harsh realities about the world. And it's a time of hope. Because we've been given a priceless gift. We've been given something beyond measure. Something wonderful. And it's worth fighting for. It's worth taking the hits for. It's worth sacrificing for. Its value is literally limitless. So I want you to keep that thought with you as we go into the next year, because things aren't going to get any easier. Things are still going to be crazy. In fact, they're going to get crazier because the globalists, the Pharisaicists who run this world are seeing very clearly that their best laid plans are failing. The moronica strain isn't working according to what they thought. 
the booster shots from the not-vaxxers aren't working. We've just gotten reports that instead of lasting six months, you now need a booster in three months. Well, okay, what's it going to be then? I mean, the UK is already planning a fourth booster shot. Israel's already doing a fourth booster shot. Um, it's soon, very soon, it's going to be a fifth booster shot. The French and the EU, the, the French have already announced this, the EU is following suit, where if you are already double-vaxxed and you haven't had a booster shot, your COVID green pass will be deactivated after exactly 270 days from the date of your, uh, of your second vaccination. So you need to get a booster shot between now and then, uh, between those two points in time, between date of your last shot you have your second vaccine shot and 270 days later. If you don't do that, your access to basic services gets cut off. The rest of the EU is now following suit. The French did it first, of course, being, you know, the, the neoliberal tyrants that they've always been, uh, since, at least since the French Revolution. The rest of the world will follow suit eventually. At some point, this is coming. We know they're going to get crazier. We know it's going to, it's four shots are not going to be enough. Soon it's going to be five shots. Then it's going to be six. When is it going to stop? It's not going to stop unless we stand up to it. It's not going to stop unless we make them stop. And the only way we can make them stop is if we stop being afraid of death. Stop being afraid of the next life. And the only way we can do that is to put our trust in the God who gave us this gift. So don't forget that. Remember the value of this gift you've been given. Remember how important it is. Fight for it. Stand up for it. Accept it for what it is. Pass on that gift to your children. And don't lose hope. Above all, don't lose hope. We will win this fight. It's going to take time. It's going to take sacrifice and pain. But we're going to win. And we're going to win so well and so thoroughly and so comprehensively that they'll wonder how the hell they could ever have taken us on in the first place. And we're going to wonder, when it's all said and done, why the hell we let these pathetic little weasels, these incompetent morons, these spineless twerps who, who hate us so much, rule over us. Because they're not big, they're not strong, they're not powerful. They're weak, stupid, incompetent, and evil. And it's not that hard to expose them for what they are. We just have to stop believing the lies. That's it. All we have to do is focus on what is true. And there is no better demonstration of what is true than what happened on this day 2,000 plus years ago. That's all I've got to say uh, for this special Christmas podcast. Many thanks, as always, for listening, and I really appreciate it. Uh, be sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you haven't done so already, and be sure to comment if you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, there was a bit of background noise, I know, it's just uh, I'm, not, I'm not alone right now, so you know, people moving around. But um, by next week, that should be sorted out for my uh, New Year's Day podcast. And uh, yeah, we will uh, catch up in the new year. And in the meantime, I wish you well. Merry Christmas. The good news is here. Let us proclaim it to all the world. Let us rejoice. Let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. Let us be glad for the priceless gift we have been given. This is Didactic Mind, episode 90, The Priceless Gift, and I am Didact, 
signing off.